Hello, and welcome to the Player to Prospect podcast. The following episode features a conversation with Connor Gandasi, an assistant coach and recruiting coordinator at Creighton University. To support the podcast, all follows, ratings, and reviews are greatly appreciated. And now I present to you Connor Gandasi. You are the hitting uh, coordinator. The um, You work with the catchers mainly, but also uh, like you kind of lead the offense for Creighton University. Um, and then you also do the recruiting side. You are you are the head recruiter at Creighton, right? Yes, that's correct. So those are your two roles. Okay. So I guess like the first thing I want to talk about um, is your position specifically, uh, just being uh, or working with the catcher specifically. Can you tell me about um, what your day to day is like with the catchers specifically? Yeah, um, it's certainly changed over the years just because the NCAA has put so many restrictions on us with with time constraints and things like mm. that. Um, and obviously, and maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I think the, the catching position is probably the most important on the field, or at least, you know, one of the most important on the field. Um, but when you have 18 plus pitchers on your staff, you have to be careful with the guidelines of, you know, how much time you're working with those catchers. So mm. what we try to do is we try to incorporate um, conditioning inside of our catching drills. Uh, that way we're making sure that our guys are staying as athletic and in shape as possible where they're just not getting stiff um, behind the plate. So what we try to incorporate is um, a, a balance of challenging drills, um, high intensity drills, fast paced. So that way they get that heart rate going. So we can mm. kind of, uh, you know, kill two birds with one stone almost. Um, so mm. in my opinion, I think receiving is is the most important. I think uh, with where we're at in baseball today in, in terms of the industry, I would say that probably throwing gets the most love because if you go to a perfect game showcase or a PBR showcase, um, the way that a catcher is going to get looked is by his arm strength. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think once you get inside the game, there's a lot that goes into it with shutting the running game down. It's not always just on the catchers. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think if we can have a plus receiver behind the plate, you're going to have the trust of, of the pitching staff. And then more importantly, you're certainly going to change the game dynamic if you're getting two, two and a half inches on, on both sides of the plate. Um, mm -hmm. One quote that's always stuck out with me, I remember reading this in college, Yachty's goal in every game was to steal 10 to 12 pitches a, a game. Now, that's probably yeah. almost unrealistic in a way because mm -hmm. the, you know, the umpires at the next level are really, really good at what they do. Um but I think if that's his goal at the major league level, then our, our goal at the college level should be the same. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I certainly think that we can make a huge impact uh, on the receiving side by, by stealing those pitches. And, and you certainly can get the other team out of their approach if that umpire is giving um, a couple inches on both sides. So in long, I think we spend a lot of time on receiving. Uh, mm -hmm. We spend a lot of time on, on footwork. Um, and then we spend a lot of time on, on flexibility and making sure that our guys are as uh, athletic as possible. Hmm. Uh, and I think uh, uh, you could bring any catcher that's that's played at a high level. You could bring in Salvi, Yachty, Buster Posey, Rio Muto, whoever you want. They could come in and give you everything that they know. But if your catcher is not flexible, he's not athletic, it doesn't matter and everything else is going to get thrown out the window. So you hmm. have to make sure that you're getting athletic catchers behind the plate. and You have to make sure that they're as flexible as possible. Hmm. You also addressed kind of like the other side of the coin with catching that is sort of the leadership role. You said it's like one of the most important positions on the field. I totally agree. Um, 
Do you guys do any sort of, like you said, conditioning? That's also a little bit of a physical thing, but I think it it's uh, one of those aspects of like bringing high energy at the catcher position that sort of like uh, oozes out into the uh, the rest of the field. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so, so uh, do you guys work on anything on that side of things, like in terms of um, how you communicate with your pitchers or is it is it more just like an experience thing that kind of like you see catchers get better at with that? I think the generality is that they would get better as time goes on. Um, yeah. As they get older, I think they're more comfortable in a leadership role. We have a sophomore now that kind of got thrown in the fire a little bit last year, mm. uh, probably about a quarter of the way through the season. He started every game as a freshman. Um, wow. And I think he had a little bit of the trust in the fall from these pitchers because of how talented he was on the defensive side. Um, but I think what he brings is a quiet confidence. He's not going to be the rah-rah, you know, if a pitcher's not doing something, you remember those mound visits. I mean, if you get a catcher that comes out there and kind of gets into you a little bit, it kind of wakes you up. He's not going to be that guy. Um, mm. But he kind of oozes that self-confidence and he oozes a quiet confidence. And just the way okay. he goes about his business is really is really fascinating to see for a young player. On the flip side of that, we brought in a grad transfer this year from USC, and he oozes a ton of confidence, and then he's going to let you know about it. Yeah. Um, which So you got a really cool dynamic with both guys here um the usc kid is is going to be more vocal uh he's got no problem jumping somebody from behind home plate and then on the flip side of that the sophomore is is more quiet he's going to pull you aside or he's going to be just kind of the way that he carries himself so we hmm. try to talk to him but i think the most important thing is know your clientele and know your catcher so hmm. don't make them do something that they're not comfortable doing um and i think even though it's a huge leadership position if they're not a vocal person and they're not big in the big locker room talk or getting in, in you know, out in front of somebody and getting after somebody, don't make them do it because then it's not going to be authentic. Um, yeah. and I think we talk to them about making sure that they know who they are from their identity standpoint. And that goes for as a player and as a person. Um, so I try to have as many talks as possible. I think the cool thing about catching is it doesn't always have to be vocal. It can be body language. It can be, uh, different cues that guys are using, like, you know, a fist pump or, you know, clapping the glove or whatever it may be. Little things like that, I think, go a long way in big situations for uh, pitchers on the mound. Uh, mm. And that's something that I learned as a catcher is, you know, if you're putting that sign down and then you're like doing this after, that pitcher's like, yeah, let's go. You know, this my guy behind home plate, he believes in this pitch. I believe in this pitch. Let's go get it done. So we mm. certainly talk about that from that standpoint. Um, but I think the body language thing is huge. If your catcher has poor body language, the rest of your team is going to have poor body language because everybody's mm -hmm. looking at you. Uh, so I think it's a huge way that they go about it. And we talk about it. Hey, if you have a bad at bat, you got to let it go. Uh, and, and, and David Ross always talked about, it. he's like, go one for four and catch a great game. That should be the goal of every catcher. And I think yeah. kind of have it flip now where it's like, now the catchers need to, you know, hit 20 to 30 home runs and drive in a hundred, hundred RBIs. And the defense doesn't really matter. And I think that kind of needs to be flipped back to a little bit of an old school way, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you call it old school, too, because for me, I, I think it's eventually going to turn into the new school again, where it's all about defense for the catcher. At least I kind of hope that's how it goes. I mean, you look at the MLB playoffs right now. I mean, I know it just ended, but I mean, you got great defensive catchers who, I mean, frankly, they don't need to hit a couple bombs, you know, per series in order for that team to succeed. Like they just need to be able to catch a good game, call a good game. So I think it's interesting. Like, like you said, uh, in terms of like the defensive versus the offensive catcher, 
can I ask on the recruiting side, just specifically there, when you're recruiting catchers specifically, are you concerned so much with the bat or is it more about the other things you've talked about in terms of like receiving on the defensive end or communication with their, their players, um, things that maybe aren't so big and flashy? Yeah, great question. For me, it's it's the athleticism component first, mm-hmm. um, and then it's the defense second. Um, you know, I, I feel like if you have that athletic catcher, maybe he is a little bit kind of underwhelming in a certain area. I think that athleticism will help him become, you know, mm-hmm. above that underwhelming type trait. So I think I look at that. And then it kind of depends on what you need from from your standpoint. I mean, if you have a lockdown catcher already on your staff, that's a great defender. And then maybe he's then you have another guy that you're recruiting that's maybe a little bit fringe defensively, but he can really hit. And that could be your mm. secondary catcher. Plus, he's your starting DH. He's not going to kill you if you put him behind home plate. If you have an injury, um, I think there's a, there's a couple ways to look at it. So mm. um, we obviously want the plus defender with the plus bat. They don't grow on trees, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so if you can have a plus defender, he can handle himself at the plate. And then your secondary guy is maybe an average defender, but he can really hit. Mm-hmm. I think that's the perfect dynamic. So, um, but if you're looking at a high school guy, first and foremost, I think you got to look at an athletic piece. If he's stiff, if he's, uh, you know, not flexible, if he doesn't move great, you know, he's kind of stiff with the forearm, stiff with the glove. Um, the arm strength isn't really there, or perhaps he's, you know, all arm strength and he has zero quickness. I, I think there's a lot that goes into it, but I think at the end of the day, if you can find a guy that, that has some quick twitch muscles, I think that's really going to kind of separate him when he gets to college. Mm. And then also what about when they get there and maybe they aren't working so well as catchers, but they're plenty athletic. Like, would you, uh, would you shy away from putting them elsewhere in the in the field if, you know, their bat plays? I would think no, right? No, I mean, if you're athletic, I mean, you can always find a corner position. You know, you can, yeah. you can play first base or perhaps you can play corner outfield. Um, I, I think Creighton's unique just because of the history of the defense at, the, at this university. Hmm. Um, you know, nobody has finished in the last two decades with less errors than Creighton University. Um, and so nobody's finished in the top 10 in fielding percentage more in the last two decades than Creighton University. So, you know, coach service has a high expectations when it comes to defense. So mm-hmm. even if the catcher is really athletic, I'm probably not going to throw him at shortstop. But that being said, if he can really, really hit and he can move well laterally, then sure, go put him in a you know corner outfield type position. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously there's only one DH. So, no, I think if you can hit, somebody's going to find a spot for you. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. that's certainly a, a premium and that's certainly, a, you know, a need at, at the college level for sure. Yeah. Oh, certainly. I mean, I feel like it's rare that you have a lineup where you have more than a couple guys hitting over 300 these days. Um, But when it does happen, it's like, oh, my gosh, like we have something really special on our hands. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Can we get into the hitting part of it, too, in terms of just the hitting uh, sort of philosophy at Creighton? Yeah. Um, So I think if you were to go back at the history. uh, So I came here in fall of 17. I was at St. Louis Mm -hmm. University before that. Um, I would say the history of the program has kind of been small ball, um, you know, and, and, and part of it was, you know, through that time, the dead bat era was kind of in play where they, they came out with the new BB core. Um, I would say early on in coach's career here, it was probably a little bit more physical, a little bit more home run esque. uh, the mm-hmm. on-campus field played really small. The turf played really fast. 
Um, but I think if you look at, at it, you know, there were years where they were sacrificed bunting 80, 90, 100 times. And, you know, wow. I would say we're averaging now 25 to 30. So hmm. certainly a, a, a huge difference. I'm not saying that we rely on the home run. Obviously, when you play a Charles Schwab, the ballpark can play rather big at times. Mm -hmm. um, in my opinion, with our philosophy, we want to be able to walk into any ballpark at any time of the year against any sort of pitcher and have an opportunity to have success. So whether you play in a small ballpark in conference um, or you play at a professional stadium like ours, you need mm -hmm. to be able to have the tools on your tool belt to walk in there. So, you know, one through 22 all know how to bunt. Um, one through 22 all know how to hit and run. Not everybody's going to be able to hit a fly ball deep enough to hit a home run. But again, when you play in small ballparks, you still have the ability to hit the ball in the air if you need to, you know, to hit a cheap home run, if you will. Mm. Um, so I would say that the, the teams, and this kind of comes from a catching standpoint, the teams that are really easy to pitch against are all the same. The teams that mm. are really hard to call pitches against are all different in their lineup. You don't really know where the top and the bottom of the lineup is because everybody brings a different dynamic. So if mm. your top has the ability to spray the ball in the gaps and then run, the middle's more power oriented, and then you start working to the bottom half and it's kind of just a mixed match of different things where maybe a guy can run into a home run or perhaps that guy can lay down a drag. Um, that's where as a catcher, you're like, man, I don't know how to figure this lineup out because everybody's doing something different. And mm. I think the teams that all do the same thing it's like you could kind of just sit back there and you go into like MLB the show mode where it's like, Hey, let's just keep putting this bitch down because yeah. they're all doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so we talk about a lot on quality of bats and hitting the ball hard. Really the only two stats that I look at when mm -hmm. it comes to like in-game stuff. So quality of bats and hard hit contact from an analytical standpoint, we're harping on OPS. Um, so on base plus slugging is, is huge. Um, and then runs and then RBIs. So I could give, two craps about batting average i you know and you might laugh because hmm. you were you're a pitcher but um hmm. i think the batting average is the only reason why we we gave it a status to give the pitcher a chance um you know frankly i, I think yeah. it's, it's it's stupid i mean you can do everything right and still go over four um so we try to we try to talk about just hard hit contact and quality of bats and those are going to win you games hmm. um and then in terms of like batted ball profile you know, I don't teach fly balls or ground balls. I teach you to match the plane for the pitch that you're going to get. So, you know, just chase hard contact, chase barrels. And then that's, you know, kind of what we talk about on a consistent basis is just get on time, get started, get landed, give yourself an opportunity to get your best swing on. Hmm. Well, you're also talking about like a verse. So you talked about a versatile sort of lineup and that can be, I think what, what some people might argue against is like how can you be so good at so many different things whereas you have a, a another organization or a school sorry who just they're one dimensional but they're really good at that one dimensional thing so what's like i was kind of just playing like devil's advocate it's like how do you work on like being um just sort of solid in different like areas of offense because like you said there's different ways to do it and you kind of want to be as versatile as you can in a lineup yeah. So I think we'll we'll use the Yankees as an example, not because I'm a Mets fan, but we'll use the Yankees as an example. So they crushed home runs all all spring, right? So they absolutely murdered the baseball in the spring and the summer. They mm -hmm. get to the playoffs, one-dimensional team. They can't hit. They break every sort of record with strikeouts. They're striking at 40% a clip. And then you yeah. look at the Astros, 
And some people might say, well, they relied on the home run ball. But I would argue that they had better quality at bats. They put the ball in play when they needed to. Their swings mm. were shorter and more compact. And they happened to just get pitches that they could drive out of the ballpark. Mm. I think if you were to look at the Astros against the Yankees in that series, you would say that the Astros had an approach. They had a plan. They knew who they were in the lineup. They knew who they were from an identity standpoint. And they didn't try to go swing for 800-foot home runs. Versus the Yankees, they were swinging out of their backsides and they had no idea um and yeah. i i used this example with our guys so to answer your question without skirting the question because it's a great question uh the guys need to know who they are so the first thing is they mm. have to identify who they are and they need an identity and as a hitter that struggled at the college level i think it was like 250 or 260 i was not a great college hitter i was a better defender i didn't really know who i was I tried to go hit home runs, and that's not who I should have been. I should have been a doubles guy. I should have been a low-line drive guy. So I think you need to know who you are. Um, and I think the guys in our lineup know who they are. Um, I think the guys know that, hey, I don't have the power that this guy has, so I'm not mm. going to try to chase home runs. Um, and frankly, that's why I love coaching in that ballpark down the street, because it forces you to know who you are. If mm. you're on a campus field where the ball flies out left and right, it's easy to get away with a big swing. And then when you hopefully have an opportunity to go play professional baseball, those ballparks get a little bit bigger. The pitcher gets a little bit better. That strikeout rate goes up and then mm -hmm. you got to go find a regular job. So I yeah. think the important thing is you have to have an identity. And mm -hmm. you know, we talk about a gaps identity. We talk about a slasher identity. And then we talk about a power identity. And okay. I think inside of those identities, you can grow. And perhaps if you had a Venn diagram, you could, mesh all three and you have some guys that are all three you have some guys that are two and perhaps you just have one guy that's one um and we've had players in this program where it's like hey you're not going to beat out an infield ground ball you're probably not going to you know hit any triples so we're going to sacrifice a little bit more swing and miss for you if you can go hit double digit home runs and you can drive in 50 rbis we're mm -hmm. okay with that but the guy that has limited power your strikeout rate needs to be down you need to be able to move the baseball. You need to be able to play small ball. Um, mm. And the hardest thing is saying, hey, just because that's your identity this year doesn't mean two years from now, if you get bigger and stronger, that you can't kind of grow into another identity. Um, so I totally. think that's the important thing of creating that versatility and creating, um, you know, that identity. That's the biggest thing. Because when people are struggling, you need to fall back on something. And, and part okay. of the problem is, you get out of who you are when you struggle and we can never figure out how to get back into it. Gotcha. And if you have an identity, then you have something to fall back on. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, the, I guess I'll just say the way I initially heard it was like everyone on the team has to be able to do everything. Whereas it's more of just a team versatility. <laughs> so, yeah. No, it's definitely a team versatility, but yeah. But individually guys, has, their, yeah. they have their own identity. Yeah. Sure. And then I, I would like say that. this, even the guys that do hit for power, they still mm -hmm. bunt every day. You know, they're still down in the cage and they're, they're repping out 25, 30 bunts every day off mm -hmm. the hack attack. They're still doing sacks, but perhaps he's not a good runner. So we're not going to drag for a hit. You're just going to do safeties because, you know, it might be a situation where the wind is howling in at 30 miles an hour. And I don't care how strong you are. You're not going to get the ball out of the ballpark. And if you're facing a dude on Friday night, it might be a situation where you got first and third one out. If you lay down a safety, you can't defend that play. I don't care how good of a defensive team you are. So you mm -hmm. better have that tool on your tool belt. So I probably should have phrased it a different way, but there's certainly some team versatility in there. 
but I want to make sure that yeah. all of our guys are getting that well-rounded, you know, type ex type of experience and, and type of tool to make them have some success. Okay. Yeah. That definitely cleared it up for me a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's, let's go like flip side. So in terms of uh, looking at pitching, what is the hardest pitcher for you guys to game plan against? <laughs> uh, and it's, certainly shifting um i would say the guy that um in leverage count so you know 2-0 uh 3-1 2-1 they have the ability to spin that breaking ball whenever they want um mm. and then the guy that can consistently get a fastball in and i'm not talking like uh the ball that has the opportunity to get hit i'm talking the ball that kind of starts middle middle in and then it just dives off the table if you have a guy that can mm. go in both angles to the plate that's really difficult. Um, and then probably the last one, which I don't think college pitchers are as good as the professional pitchers. And I'll use Javier from, from the Astros as an example, mm. you know, his ball's like 12 inches up and then 12 inches over. So, I mean, it's really hard to hit because it looks so good. And then all of a sudden you're just getting sawed off on it. So yeah. I don't think college pitchers are there yet where they can really get the good ride on the fastball consistently. I feel like sometimes mm. the college pitchers, when they throw up in the zone, it's never a strike. And you can kind of see it out of the hand. Mm -hmm. The professional pitchers are so good at making it look like a strike and then it just rides out of the zone. Mm. Those pitches are really challenging. But um, I think it sums it up, pitchability. You know, you can, yeah. hit, you can hit stuff. I mean, you can hit velo. The average fastball last year in Division One was 89.8. So when I played from, you know, I graduated in 2012, if you saw 8891 you're like man this guy's throwing hard now it's like 8891 is considered stock so yeah you know it's it's like if you have a guy that's high pitch ability then he knows how to pitch mm. he's gonna carve you up all day um and that's what we ran into i think at unlv back in the covid season in 20 greg maddox's kid pitched and greg mm. maddox was the volunteer at the time at unlv mm -hmm. so this kid hops on the mound i mean he was 82 85 but he threw a bugs bunny changeup. he threw it whenever he wanted he pitched to both sides of the plate. I mean, it was almost like if you told him to hit this quadrant, he would do it 10 out of 10 times. Um, and maybe wow. he had an on day. I don't know. I just walked out of there and I was like, that's, we just faced Greg Maddox. That's basically what it felt like. So I, I think if you have a guy <laughs> that uh, has high pitch ability, mm. I would rather face the guy that's throwing 94, 97. Um, in, in my opinion, I, I just think you can make adjustments a little bit easier, but the guy that throws whenever he wants, wherever he wants, good luck, man. You're going to have a long day at the plate. Mm, totally and you mentioned uh for your offense you want you guys want to have quality at bats and you kind of alluded to like the astros and how they're really good at like fighting with two strikes and just like elongating the at bat is that like a, a goal for your guys offense is to get the starter out of the game as early as you can 100 percent. and and the dangerous thing about that is perhaps you might get off to a slow start offensively um mm. if you're willing to grind out at bats and, and get to you know 80 to 90 pitches by the fifth inning um Perhaps it doesn't click right away, but the deeper you can get into that bullpen, at least at the college level, the better it is. I don't know if that's the case at the big league level, probably not based on what we've seen on TV. But, yeah. um, you know, I think I think at the college level, you, you know, your goal is to get into that bullpen deep on Friday night, because by Saturday and Sunday, that team is going to be exhausted. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's where you can win a championship is by winning those secondary games on Saturday and Sunday. Um, you know, Friday is going to be a grind, but if you want to win a championship, you got to win every series, mix in a couple sweeps. But the only way you can do that is by exposing the other team, which more oftentimes than not is their bullpen. Um, so mm -hmm. 
our goal certainly we're not going up there taking pitches, but we have to have a quality game plan. What is this guy's strengths? What is he trying to do? What are we going to take away? And then when you do get into that two strike battle mode, that's where that competitiveness needs to come out. And you just need to kind of sacrifice your at bat foul pitches off, you know, keep grinding out at bats. And if you can get an average of five, six pitches in at bat, before you know it, he's going to be at his pitch count. Um, and that's mm. when you can kind of say, okay, hey, he's out. Let's go to work. Now we're going to make adjustments to that bullpen, you know, with, with whatever they throw at us. Um, so, yes, it's huge. We, we want to get that starter out by the fourth or fifth inning. That's our goal. Um, mm. Does it accomplish every single time? No. But I think the deeper you get, the more success you're going to have later on in that weekend. Yeah. You also talked about approach. Um, is it the same as the general uh, philosophy with every guy has a little bit different of approach or will you guys maybe um, call an audible on that if a specific is throwing is it is it more basically sorry on the pitcher or is it kind of like no this is our identity like for this guy he's going to keep the same approach uh, game to game this is where I would say perhaps we are cookie cut a little bit we're never getting off the fastball um mm. we are not going to miss fastball so you know i would equate it to some people have fomo like fear of missing out on things we have <laughs> yeah. fear of missing out on fastballs we want to be on time all the time <laughs> for the fastball um, yeah and you know i was talking to nikki lopez who's in the royals organization mm -hmm. and nick came up for alumni weekend two years ago and and you know it was the year that he hit 300 in the big leagues and I'm sitting there and I'm like, hey, man, talk to me about what changed for you. Like, you know, you went from 220, 230 to 300. You hit 300 in the big leagues. You play every day. I don't care about the power or not. That's really impressive. Mm -hmm. um, and he's talking about how he watched the Derek Jeter video with Jim Tomei. And he was talking about how Derek Jeter was on time for fastball middle. And I think a lot of us talk about being on time fastball away. And I think that's mm -hmm. a huge mistake. I think you should be on time for fastball middle because you can still get to a fastball in. You can still get the fastball away if you're a little bit late on it. And then you can still handle the breaking ball because if your swing is inside the you know path of the baseball and your fastball middle and you get a breaking ball, you can still end up pulling it in the left center gap. So yeah, again, do we get off it every now and then? Sure. If the guy's up there just flipping, you know, get me over breaking balls and we can sit on a breaking ball and hammer it. Sure. But more oftentimes than not, you're not going to get a fastball bias. That's our goal. Um, and I think the biggest thing with the approach is early, slow timing. Um, so we're going to mm -hmm. get going early and slow. So that way we can get all of our movements and our sequence out of the way. We have an opportunity to identify the pitch on whether or not we want to swing. And I think the biggest thing is hitters get in trouble when they're rushed. And when hitters don't have the opportunity to see the baseball, they can't make decisions. I don't care how smart or how fast your brain works. You have to be able to go early and slow and give yourself an opportunity to get your best swing on. Um, mm -hmm. And so we talk about that a lot. We try to put our guys in situations with uh, the machine stuff, because if you're not practicing that at a high level all the time, then you can't just turn it on in the game. If you're constantly just doing feel good BP, feel good front toss, and you walk out of there and you're like, man, I, I mashed today, but you faced a 40 mile an hour arm off BP, doesn't do anything for you, right? Yeah. So you'd be able yeah. to hit spin you need to be able to hit fastball so we constantly do that every single day but um the approach is is mainly on time for fastball middle and then adjust breaking ball from there but you know if you're sitting off speed that's when he's going to sneak that fastball by you and you're going to get all frustrated and then more often times than not you're going to get a breaking ball again you're going to be down oh two and then you're like damn now you're at the mercy of the pitcher 
So yeah, we want to hammer that fastball without question. Gotcha. I mean, I think that's a good like general philosophy or it's a philosophy that you see a lot uh like at the big league level too it's like the best hitters are the guys that can hit the fastball even if you have pitchers that are up there throwing like 60 percent sliders it's like okay well the other 30 percent like we're gonna be ready for that because it's gonna be a lot easier to hit that fastball if we're ready for it so okay so definitely want to ask about that um yeah yeah that definitely that makes a lot of sense I, I found that like the best hitters for me just facing you know facing hitters this year was you know, the guys that can hit the fastball the best. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and I would say the other thing with that, too, is like, I mean, again, even if you have the ability to spin the breaking ball at a high rate, you're more mm-hmm. likely oftentimes than not not going to be able to land it for a strike. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're on time, fastball, middle, you're going to be able to see the breaking ball longer and you're going to be able to see if it's a ball or not. But if you're in between on that approach and you're like, I'm thinking fastball, I'm thinking breaking ball, that's when you're chasing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when you get sped up. And so it's like, hey, stick to this and hey if you want to throw 80 percent breaking balls and you can land it for a strike then we're going to tip the cap at the end of the day i'll take my <laughs> money i'm not a gambling man but i would bet that you can't do it yeah yeah especially at the college level like it's, yeah, it's very hard to do um i want to shift over to like day-to-day process of uh where you guys are at uh are you guys done with your fall so right now we're in that individual skill work which i'm sure you remember i'm sure you, you love that part yeah um, of course <laughs> so the weather is kind of different up in Omaha than it would be, you know, down in New Orleans and, and or maybe the South or the West for that matter. Um, we've had an extremely mild, I should say hot fall. Um, hmm. I mean, like today it's going to be 80 tomorrow. It's going to be 80. So like really, really weird, weird fall. Um, our guys get to school looking at the calendar, like August 16th is kind of when we first get going August 18th, that weekend. Um, we'll hop into individual work for about two and a half weeks, three weeks, get the guys back going. Um, some guys mm-hmm. played summer ball, some guys didn't. So kind of everybody's at a different, you know, time of where they're at with their body. So we'll go two and a half, three weeks. We'll be getting in the weight room, getting acclimated with that. And then from there, we'll hop into team practice right around Labor Day. And we will go all the way into the middle of October. They'll go on fall break for about half of that. And then we'll come back and we'll knock out individual work until the week of Thanksgiving. And then they're done until January 12th. So Wow. Okay. Certainly different than perhaps what you're used to um, or perhaps somebody on the West Coast is used to. Um, it's good and bad. I think if if we had the weather, I would probably flip it and say, hey, we can hammer out individual work for the first month or month and a half. And then we can go into team practice mm-hmm. leading up almost until they leave for Christmas break. I think that's a huge advantage. Um, but if we're looking at you know, glass, glass half full, I would say that, you know, on the flip side of that, we get to see what they do throughout the whole fall. And then we have the entire month and a half to kind of make some fixes or changes leading them into their winter season. So it's fresh in their mind Um, rather than them going into Christmas and they just got done playing games and they kind of don't know where they stand. Um, Mm. and, And so I think, I think for us, we can kind of use that as an advantage of saying, Hey, we just worked on this for a month and a half, keep going for the entire, you know, Christmas break and then come back and we're ready to roll. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think it's kind of, it adds a little bit of accountability and responsibility to their career, in my opinion. I was going to ask about Christmas break too, because that's a point in time where even I remember just kind of going, what should I be doing right now? Like I just finished playing games, but should I keep throwing? Like, yeah, but 
to what capacity, like what are we working on? So I, I actually like the sound of that. And that's what you guys do. You guys have a pretty well thought out plan for what they do over winter break. Yeah. So, you know, I'll sit individually with, with every hitter and we'll kind of go through their plan for, for the off season. Um, mm -hmm. If they perhaps live in a secluded area where they can't get to an indoor hitting facility, we try to at least find them something where they can get off a machine consistently. I think that's huge. Uh, I think the biggest message, and if you have high school players that are listening to this podcast, or perhaps you have college players that are listening, the biggest thing is we don't have the luxury of time if you don't do what you need to do over winter break. If you come back and you're not in shape or you haven't been doing what you're doing, you're going to lose your spot. And that's not our fault. That's just the calendar. If yeah. we move the season back to you know April, then sure, we would have that time to kind of use it as spring training to get you back in shape. But mm -hmm. we don't. We basically have January 12th until January 26th, and then you start team practice, and then your first game is three and a half, four weeks later. So we don't have the time to sit down with you and be like, hey, man, it's okay. You didn't lift. You didn't run. You didn't throw. You didn't hit. We don't have the time for that. So mm -hmm. we try to educate them as much as possible. When you come back, it's a whirlwind, and you probably remember that. You come back, and it's like you don't really know what hit and then the next thing you know you're waking up to get on that flight or perhaps you stayed in your stadium but you're waking <laughs> up to go to that flight and you're on the road and it's like it's go time your first yeah. game's ready to roll so it happens so quickly so we try to educate them as much as possible coach mormon our pitching coach does a great job of laying out a plan for the pitchers a lot of our pitchers have been shut down they're shut down until about december 1st and then they'll get ramping up um and then obviously that's a little bit easier, in my opinion, for pitchers, because you can kind of put that throwing program in there. All these yeah. guys have a lot of opportunity, whether it's driveline or tread, or there's some other stuff that I probably don't know about. All these guys have a bunch of stuff rolling around. So I think the pitchers are a little bit easier. It's the hitters where it's like, do you have a guy that can throw you BP? Do you have a guy to even feed the machine to you? So a lot of our guys actually come back after spending, you know, a week at home. They'll come back and train here, um, which is pretty wow. cool, you know, yeah. so. I think that's pretty unique. We have a lot of guys that end up leaving uh, home anyway, and they come back to train, which is great. We do have a lot of West Coast guys on the team that have buddies back there that they train with. Um, so I would say the guys in the Midwest come back to campus. The guys on the West Coast have that luxury of, you know, hitting with people out there and obviously staying outside. So um, definitely the scariest point of anybody's coaching career. They leave in the best shape of their life. They leave with where you want them to be. And then it's like, see you later, six weeks, good luck. Um, and yeah. then, you know, the NCAA puts restrictions on you on what you can talk about on the phone or what you can talk about over Zoom. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it's stupid. It, honestly, it's really dumb. <laughs> yeah. If I want to call, like, if, you, if my player wants to send me video on his swing, I don't see the big deal on that. I don't know why we make it such a big deal. They only you do that? Off the record. <laughs> wow. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, you can do it. I don't know how much you can dive into it. Um, you know, I can't, huh. what people send me on my phone, but we'll give the guys blast motion. So they'll have blast motion and you okay. know, obviously that populates all their swings and things like that. But um, we like them to take video. We like them to ask questions and things like that um, and just stay in constant contact. But I would just say it's the scariest point because you really don't have, you know, you don't really know what they're doing. You don't have control. It's like, okay. Does he yeah. go hit? Is he doing it the right way? Or is he just taking 200 swings just to say he took 200 swings? Mm, yeah. 
yeah i i totally agree that it is like it is that scary point it's that weird in between you know before a season where it's like all right are we on the right trajectory or are you gonna you gonna fall off i mean yeah it's and, and that's the thing i'm jealous of pro ball because it's like you know you might send if you're a big leaguer it's like hey call your hitting coach have fly him out to arizona or california or florida wherever you're at come hit me for a week let's see where we're at you know or like hey send videos and you can have that constant dialogue and you have the luxury um, and the freedom to kind of, kind of say like, well, I'm trying to get better. So let me use the resources that I have. Mm. And I just think we kind of have it screwed up a little bit at the NCAA level. Yeah. I've, I've heard that throughout, you know, the couple of the couple episodes I've done is like, there's, there's just a little bit of a lack of communication, lack of transparency of like what you guys need, but you know, you make the most of what you can. Um, I want to ask about freshmen uh, specifically. Um, if a freshman is struggling um, because he's new on campus, he's getting acclimated, all these things. Um, have you have you identified that recently in any of your players? How do you how do you kind of work through um, a player that is struggling, maybe uh, as he's coming in in the in that first year of college baseball? Yeah, I made it a goal this year just because we had about eleven or twelve freshmen this year. I made it a goal to walk up to him during stretch. I did it with every player, but just kind of pull a freshman aside during stretch and say, Hey, how's everything going? Mm. You know? And again, I, the, the, that's not always enough because somebody can say, Hey, I'm great. And they're really miserable on the inside. Um, so constantly yeah. what we do is we pair up the new first year players with returners on the team. And basically mm. it's like a mentorship almost, or if they have a question or where it's like, Hey, Coach G is just, he's talking about hitting stuff that I have no idea about, and I don't feel comfortable going to him. What do you think he means about this? Or Coach Service ran practice this way. What the hell's going on? Something like that. Mm. Um, or it could be like, hey, I don't really know where to go grocery shopping. Or, hey, I don't really know what to do here. It could be little things. It could be big things. Mm. They obviously have that mentor, even it could be somebody the same age. It's more of a mentor of like, hey, I've been through it. You're about to go through it. Um, um, and I think having that fallback is huge. I think having the resources to say, hey, I need to reach out to somebody. I need to talk to this person. And if it gets back to us where it's really serious, obviously we have resources on campus um, to help that person if they're in a uh, bad situation. Mm-hmm. But I think if if the biggest thing that I learned from my college is, is my freshman year, and again, I'm very close with the coaches that coach me. I would say my first two years, that relationship was not great. I felt like I was left behind. I felt like they weren't invested in me. Um, And we had that conversation. Um, You know, I remember hitting in the cage by myself and the hitting coach walked down who I'm best friends with now. He's in AAA with the Rays. I absolutely love the guy. He's he's like a mentor to me. Um, And I remember he's like, what's going on? I'm like, it's the longest conversation we've had since you recruited me. And I think at times coaches are guilty of, we got you here. And then it's kind of like, see ya. And I think it's important to invest in the people that have invested in you. They've Mm -hmm. invested in you by committing to you and by coming here. So now it's your job as a coach to make sure that we're doing everything right and making sure that they're in a good situation. Um, Mm -hmm. So we have had players that perhaps um, have gotten off on the wrong foot and we've tried to, you know, I guess, help them and give them the tools to be successful. I'm not talking about like getting in trouble drinking or in the dorms and things like that. Just struggling on the field, maybe struggling on the, it could be even struggling in the classroom, you know, not being able to handle the college load because mom and dad aren't here anymore to say, Hey, you're home from practice. Go do your homework. 
you know, you got class sometimes from eight until 10, and then you got the rest of the day until practice and then practice over at five. Mm. What do you do with the rest of your time? You know, and I think the time management thing is huge. So I think having constant conversations with them about that is, is, is really important. Um, but I think surrounding them with a strong group of individuals that can help them and, and give them answers is probably the most important thing that you can do. Yeah. I mean, I think whether or not a freshman likes it, there's a level of maturing that they have to do. And some players can really push back on that sort of uh, that teaching that, or that lesson learning and others, you know, they accept it with open arms or they just already learned it. So, I mean, like you said, like conversations with teammates is definitely a good way to do it. Um, I like the sound of that. I just, there are definitely times, like just in my experience where I've seen players, they push back on like coaches that want to help them or even players that want to help them. Have you had that, like just at your experience at all coaching, like players that, you know, it seems like they're just pushing away um, at, at any sort of help. Yeah. <laughs> all, all the time. Like, um, yeah. You know what I mean? Right. In terms of like, we're trying to help, but like, why does it seem like, why, why are you making it seem like we're not trying to help? You know, like there's, a, it, that seems to happen sometimes. It happens. I, I think recently it happens a lot. I mean, I think more than know, normal. Maybe, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe I was a different type of player where, I mean, if the coach told me to jump, I was going to say how high, you know, yeah. it's like, I wasn't <laughs> going to argue. I wasn't going to push back. And, and perhaps that's just the way that, you know, who I am, but mm. I think players today perhaps take, uh, teaching or coaching like criticism and they're like oh you're attacking me and you think I don't know anything about what we're doing and it's like no I just don't want to have this conversation in the middle of the year so yeah. you know if, if we're struggling on something I'm not saying you're a bad player I'm not saying you're a bad person I'm not saying you're not knowledgeable I'm just saying this way might work or this way might help you well, yeah. it's kind of in the middle here um, and so I kind of take the approach of like a servant leader or perhaps, you know, more a two-way street of communication. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was kind of brought up in an era of coaching where it was like, the coach is going to tell you what to do and you better go do it. Because if yeah. not, you're probably going to find polls all practice. Now you, you can't really get away with that. So yeah, yeah. for you me, can't. it's more of a two-way street of communication. I'm not sure why players feel the urge to push back a little bit because if you care about the team, and you care about your own personal goals, then wouldn't you want to take all the advice and then form your own opinion on it instead of being like, I'm just going to block that out right away. To me, yeah. that doesn't make any sense. Um, I don't, I don't really get that. I, I don't. And I think mm -hmm. it's a societal issue to be honest with you. I think we're so big on pushing back uh, if we don't agree with it, you know, and initially, and I, yeah. You know, I think it's a society issue, and I think we're obviously seeing it at, at our level when it comes to coaching. It's definitely a shift in the, in the player-coach relationship. I heard another coach say a couple weeks back that a lot of players like to, um, or, or they tend to now, try to figure out why you're doing something. Like, they need an, an explanation for why you're doing things. And I had never thought of it like that. But I also realize I'm one of those people. I always want to like understand the inner workings of why we're doing something, uh, especially if I don't understand it, like if I can't rationalize it myself. So have you realized that maybe it's like the players, they just want to know why you're doing something. I'm okay with that. I actually tell them to ask why, 
what I don't yeah, like okay. is when they ask why I give them the reason and then they're like, yeah, but, and it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like there's no, but this is, <laughs> yeah. this is why we need to do this. Um, yeah. You know, and, and again, like some people might be like, well, I don't, I don't like hitting off the machine. Well, why are we hitting off machines? Because it's the close to game like as we're going to get, because we don't have mm -hmm. the luxury of pulling a pitcher out of the closet and being able to get on the mound and throw at bats to us. We don't have yeah. that. You can't just yeah. pull it out, but I can pull a machine out and I can say, Hey, you're going to be able to simulate a game here. So, and then they're like, but coach, like it just messes with my timing. Okay. Then we got to make an adjustment because the game is all about adjustments. And yeah. when you're in the game, you better be able to make an adjustment. So I'm okay with the why. And I think maybe older coaches don't like the why mm -hmm. I'm okay with it. I always tell our guys, Hey, we need to have a why behind everything that we're doing. This mm -hmm. drill is the yeah. reason why. Why are we working on cuts and relays? Why are we working on bunt coverages when other teams are just scrimmaging? Because we want to make sure that we don't screw it up when the game really matters. So mm -hmm. there's always a reason why behind what we're doing. Yes, I agree with you. But I think part of it is bad coaches don't know why. They're just doing it to do it, and that's stupid. You need to have a reason <laughs> why. And, and I think the generation that we're coaching now, you hit the nail on the head. They have to know why because they're curious and there's more information out there, that's a good thing. But it also can be dangerous as a coach if you don't really know why. Because then you get then that then that yeah. the trust is thrown out the window. Then they're like, man, this dude doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm, you're talking about trust too. I was gonna kind of shift over to that aspect because when a team knows why they're doing anything, it's kind of like they all have this general understanding of what's going on. It's a lot easier for a team to come together like as a unit and like build, like you said, build that trust. Uh do you guys focus on that at all in terms of like your uh, team practices maybe, or when you guys are in competition uh, during scrimmages, do you guys focus on uh, sort of like that building the trust uh, there? And I, I also asked this a little bit because I'm realizing a lot of um, professional organizations are starting to prioritize like this top to bottom, like communication line that is like just pivotal or like, so important for the success of an organization at least just in what i've been seeing uh interviews coaches whatever it is yeah i think the hardest thing is um when you're in the fall it is difficult to show what the accountability will be if you don't follow um the goals of of, of the game right so like our mm -hmm. goals are, are limiting free bases um pretty much that's the only thing you know, we talk about limiting free bases all the time. Five mm. free bases or less are is our goal every game. Um, mm. and, and to score five runs or more as an offense. If we do those two things, then the other team's not going to win, right? Like, and, and we have stats for the last 17, 18, 19 years that show that. If mm -hmm. you limit the other team to five free bases or less, if we score five runs or more, and then the pitchers have their own stuff where it's like first pitch strikes, two by three, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of different things that they talk about from that standpoint. I think the difficult thing is in the fall, you're only allowed two outside competition games. So it's kind of challenging in a way to say, hey, if we don't accomplish these goals inside the scrimmage, we're going to talk about it. But then you just go on your, your merry way and it's like whatever. Right. But in the spring, if you don't accomplish those goals well, crap, we just got, we just got swept or we just lost two out of three. And now, now, now we care. Right. And so that's mm. where you need to make sure that the communication component is at the highest level. And then the buy-in is at the highest level. 
Yeah. So providing them with statistics is the why. And then mm, communication yeah. of how you go about it is huge, right? Breaking it down to simplify it of saying, fellas, if we don't limit pass balls, wild pitches, walks, hit by pitches, errors, trail runners, stolen bases, whatever it may be, if you don't limit that in your free bases, we're going to give up a, a massive amount of runs. Mm -hmm. If we don't score five runs because we're not doing a team offense type component, we're not going to win a lot of games. So again, it's huge. Trust and communication, make or break relationships. Trust and communication, make or break organizations. So mm -hmm. if, if, the, if the communication is not there and the coaching staff is doing a terrible job of communicating um, the goals of the team for every game, then the trust is not there. And then all of a sudden you start seeing guys that are like, I'm just going to worry about me and I'm going to go get mm -hmm. mine and that's it. And I yeah. can care less because I don't really understand what we're trying to accomplish here. And frankly, I don't really trust the staff and I don't really trust anybody else on this team. And the good <laughs> teams that we've been a part of, you know, that, that communication is there and that trust is there. So um, that's huge. You know, that's, that's like, let's see the, the goal every single fall, teach them why we're doing things. Hmm. Have you found in your experience that the teams that are better at doing those things are a little bit older or is it kind of more of a mixed bag? And I kind of want to take this into the recruiting side of things with the whole transfer portal and just the way mm -hmm. the recruiting's been. But have you seen like older teams are generally a little bit more um, successful in those areas of uh, just a just a team team like sort of, um, I don't know, nature? Yes, um, I, I think it's a mixed bag, but I think the key players are older. Um, yeah. So that could be a catcher, that could be your Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that could be your rotation, that could be your shortstop, that could be your center fielder. And then perhaps you have like a young corner outfielder that, you know, is kind of flushed in there and, you know, he kind of has a great year to start off, but he's surrounded by older players that are helping him, kind of teaching him and advising him. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have yet to see a team full of freshmen make a deep run into the playoffs. I, I could be completely misquoting myself here. Maybe I am. I am neither. But I, I, I think the more experience you have, the easier it is to coach and the more trust there is because they've been through the, the, the grind. They understand why we're doing what we're doing now, conditioning Saturday morning at 7 a.m. Why are we lifting at 630 in the morning? Why are we talking about cuts and relays? Why are we doing this bunt coverage stuff? That's mm -hmm. where I think the freshmen are kind of like, coach, can we just play a game? Like, I'm, I'm just ready to play. But you got these older guys that's like, no, do you remember that game? And as a junior year, we screwed up that bunt coverage. That cost us a big inning. And that cost us the regular season championship, which then costed us our seed in the, in the tournament, which mm. is why we didn't go to the NCAA regional. There's things like that that those guys think about. And mm. I think those older players, they're a little bit more driven to host that, you know, kind of put that championship banner up um, because they've been through it. And they know what the taste is of losing. And it drives them nuts. And I think the yeah. freshmen are kind of just trying to keep their head above water. But I think when you have that mixed bag of older players, and maybe there's a couple freshmen that are contributing, that's where that culture gets built because that starts mm. you know, kind of carrying on in yeah. each class. Yeah. I'll play devil's advocate again. Uh, why would we not just go out and get a bunch of portal guys then because they're, you know, older with more experience as opposed to trying to recruit freshmen? Because, I mean, with the way things are, you know, it's crazy. It's like the wild, wild west 
with the portal nowadays. So, I mean, why not just go get portal guys, right? It's hard to sustain culture if you just get constant uh, one-year or two-year guys. Um, that culture does not get sustained because you're constantly having to teach it all over again. Yeah, um, I think True. you need that that blend of freshmen, junior college, transfer portal guys. Um, I think the JUCO guys bring a dynamic of toughness and dirtbag-esque. And then I think the portal guys uh, bring a lot of experience. If you have a grad student that has played four years of college baseball, that's tremendous because he's going to bring a different dynamic. We have a transfer from a West Coast school. The West Coast school did, has not been historically good. He's got an interesting dynamic because he knows what it's like to struggle. So he can talk to our guys if we do go through a struggle phase, right? But mm -hmm. he's now surrounded himself with a bunch of winners. So now he's learning how to win, right? And yeah. then you have the freshmen where they're kind of taking all this information and they're forming their own opinion. And that's going to be the culture that's going to be passed down from every year. But if you don't mm. involve younger players in your recruiting and you only have guys that are coming in for a short period of time, I don't know how you build culture. Um, mm. I, I think it's a constant um, kind of we got to start all over again. And while you do start yeah. over, you still want that base and that foundation of what your morals and values are when it comes to a program. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it, it worked for Kentucky for a little bit and I in basketball. Um, hopefully Cal Perry doesn't listen to this, but I think it's certainly <laughs> um, hurt them a little bit in recent years because you have a bunch of guys that are coming in and they're looking out for their NBA careers and they're not really looking in for the betterment of the team and to, you know, bring a championship type mindset and culture to the program. Mm, yeah. And I don't know if it's just recent history or if this is, it's always the way it's been, but it feels like growing up, you could just put like the most talented team on the field and more than likely they're going to, they're going to be winning like 40, 45 games in a season. And right now it seems like more than ever, there's, as soon as you get to the regionals, it's like, okay, literally anyone could win. I mean, we saw last year with, with Ole Miss. I mean, it's just like, they were last 14 minutes. Like, wow. Like they just made a run. Like, you know, it's just like any team can just get hot at any time and you can just like if you can just get in, like then you got a shot because like just the level of competitiveness and talent level is just so I would say it's more even at least uh, maybe than maybe than in, in the past. But um, so I played devil's advocate there. Now, I also want to ask about like turnover with freshmen because that can happen. And you said you mentioned you brought in 11 freshmen. Um, I think I was in a class with nine freshmen and I mean, we had a, we had a complete overhaul and like, I think one guy stayed after our freshman year, like the, what, like, does that happen ever? Maybe not, maybe not in your experience. Like, I hope, I hope not like that doesn't happen all the time, but is that just like a reality of college baseball or do you guys try to, you know, keep, keep as many of your guys as possible? We try to keep our guys as, as many as possible. Um, I, I think the patience of the player has kind of, um, I guess, gone away. Um, and I don't know if it's more yeah. people. I don't know if it's more people chirping in these kids' ears nowadays. If it's a situation where, you know, they call back home and 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 a travel ball coach or a high school coach or could even be a family friend. They're like, "Hey, man, you're a good player. Why are you sitting on the bench over there?" Well, I come to a game. You know, these kids are old. Our second <laughs> baseman, he's a six-year guy. You know, he's going on 24 years old this year. He's old. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that's a six year difference between an 18 year old. That's a that's a lot. Um, crazy. From 
just not even a physicality standpoint, but a mental standpoint, 24 mm-hmm. to 18. I mean, man, that is ridiculous. So yeah. yeah. I, 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 we try to tell the freshman, Hey, be patient, you know, but we started two freshmen in center field last year. I told you the catcher was a, was a freshman. We started freshman pitchers. Um, so again, if you're, if you're good, you can go beat out a fifth year guy. We're going to play the best guys at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. What I get frustrated at is they don't look big picture. We just look right in front of us instead of saying, where am I going to be years down the road? The best example I can give was a kid that we had drafted in the third round last year, Alan Roden. Mm-hmm. Alan came in to a team that was stacked. I mean, 2019, we had seven draft picks. We finished 20th in the country. We had three hitters in the top 10. We were loaded. We were one of the best offenses in the country. Uh, mm-hmm. Our entire pitching staff or our entire rotation was drafted. I mean, we were good. And Alan didn't play. He redshirted. And then, you know, he has COVID and he – he basically had four at bats that year. His last at bat, we were up in Minnesota, up at US Bank in the in the dome, and he hit a ball in like the third deck. I mean, it was a bomb. And we kind of looked at each other, myself and the head coach, and we're like, well, he's never gonna get out of the lineup ever again. The next day, season's canceled. So then we go through yeah. the whole offseason, and then we come back in 21. He plays every day. He technically is a freshman. <laughs> he gets freshman of the year. And then he comes back last year, he strikes out 2.6% of the time and he hits like damn near 400 and he's a third round draft pick. Yeah. That's patience, right? But he could have said after his first year, like, you didn't, you didn't play me after a freshman year. I'm going to go to a junior college or I'm going to hop in. The, well, the portal wasn't around at that time. And then obviously COVID hit. So he had four at bats in his first two years of college. And then wow. you know, it's like, that's patience to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I get frustrated when kids don't do that. When they when they look at it and they're like, ah, screw this. This ain't working. I mean, our second baseman, 2018 is his first year. He's redshirted. 2019, behind a ninth-round second baseman, he gets like 30 at-bats. And then COVID hits. And then he has an unbelievable year in, in 21. He's got a great year in 22. And now he's going to finish his last year this year. That's patience. He bought into the process. He trusted himself. He trusted the organization. And then he's obviously had a tremendous career. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about with like delayed gratification is like, that's something a lot of young players just probably fail to recognize, especially in the the social media area, you know, with like, uh, I want, I just want the recognition now and everything like that. Um, but like you said, just kind of the college baseball, like it, it pretty much asks you to to have that, uh, unless you're a, you know, one percenter of a one percenter, I guess in college baseball, but, um, like you said, process, trust in the process, um, is is definitely the way to go uh, if you're a listener out there. Um, and then you mentioned um, you mentioned like, well, I'm okay. Sorry, I mentioned social media, and I wanted to bring that into recruiting and how that's maybe like turn into like a factor of uh, recruiting players for you. And then also, uh, so this is a little bit twofold. So like just the general wave of technology and how it's come into baseball whether it's a player off the field or on the field, when you look at like metrics uh, when recruiting a player, like how has that impacted you or how do you use that uh, in recruiting your players? Yeah. Um, I'll start with the metrics first. So um, yeah. Okay. Obviously spin rate. I mean, we got the fancy radar gun now that tells you the spin rate with the radar, with the velocity and stuff like that. Yeah. That's always helpful. I still really think for pitchers, it comes down to swing and miss. Um, you know, if you're if you're getting barreled at the high school or junior college level, um, 
and you're not getting any swings and misses and guys are fouling pitches off left and right. I don't know if that's really going to translate by the time you get to us. I also would look at um, the strikeout to walk ratio. Um, and that goes for both sides. If you got a guy in junior college, it's high walk rate. Uh, that's only going to get worse by the time you get to college baseball, because obviously at junior college, the zones are bigger. The hitters are not as disciplined. There's not as much information at the junior college level from a mm. uh, from a scouting standpoint. So that's only going to get worse. And and I think if you look at swing and miss, walk to strikeouts, and then obviously you know the stuff is going to play a factor after that. Whether you know he's a hard thrower, whether he's a sinker ball type guy, or whether he's a slider guy. So I think that plays a dynamic from us from an analytical standpoint. On the hitting side, strikeout to walk ratio is huge. Um, if you're swinging and missing at a really high level in high school or junior college, it's going to go up. Um, and I know coach's nephew who's the manager for the Mariners. He talked about it when he was with the Rangers and, and they had a board, you know, at the Rangers organization where they would look at it and they would have different colors for each player. And he asked that, he asked him, what does that mean? And he's like, well, we think three to 5% of every level you go up, you're going to strike out more. So if you're striking out, you know, in high school at, you know, a, or at college at a 17% clip, when you go to rookie ball, it's going to be 20 to 22. And if you go to double A, it's going to be 23 to 27. And then if you go to triple A, it's going to be 27 to 33. And you're probably not going to make it to the big leagues. So, you know, mm -hmm. they look at it that standpoint. So we kind of try to adopt the same model where guys are not swinging and missing as much. And then from that standpoint, it kind of depends on what you're looking for. You know, is he a power guy? Is he a gap guy? Is he a runner? Um, yeah. And then the defensive stuff kind of factors into it. But, you know, when you go down to Lake Point down to Atlanta, obviously they have the exit velocity up on the scoreboard, which is a nice thing to have. Because if you're getting a guy that's constantly barreling the baseball and every time you go watch him, it's like 96 off the bat, 100 off the bat, 90 off the bat. He's consistently barreling the ball. Um, I, I think that's a huge, you know, kind of bonus for that kid. Mm -hmm. um, and then the metrics for me, like arm velocity across the infield is not a huge thing for me. I'm looking at, you know, more carry, more footwork, how are his actions? Uh, does he have uh, the ability to move laterally? Um, mm -hmm. And then from an outfield standpoint, what are his routes like? You know, does he get good jumps on the ball or is he a dumpster fire? Um, <laughs> is he, you know, a guy that maybe is, has an awful arm and he doesn't really hit, then that's probably not going to play. Um, but if you got a guy in a corner outfield that can really hit, but the arm's not great, you're probably going to sacrifice a little bit. Um and then 60 yard dash, I really could care less. Um, you know, hmm. I think there's been plenty, there's plenty of runners that are high quality that can go first to third and they have the ability to cut the bag at a higher level than maybe somebody in a straight line speed. I mean, not oftentimes are you going to run straight line speeds in, in, in baseball. If it's football, sure. You know, I don't, I don't disagree, but in baseball, you got to be able to cut the bag. You got to be able to move, you know, quick um, around the bags and, and kind of that first jump. So, yeah. Uh, Remind me the first quote of oh, social media. All right. So social media. Yeah. I want to ask about social media too. Yeah. Social media is huge. You know, we, I mean, again, it's not football where you have 18 to 20 coaches that can go out and recruit. We have three. Um, and, and I, I hope with the new votes that are coming out, we get more coaches that have the ability to go on the road um, because mm -hmm. I think the transfers will go down. Hopefully, hopefully, because you'll be able to see kids more if you have more help. Um, and you'll be able to do a little bit more diving and 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 kind of dive into who they are as a person if you get to spend more time with them. Um, mm -hmm. Frankly, baseball has been left behind in that. Uh, you know, now that the roster's at 40, 
we have four coaches, you know, that's, that's a 10 to one ratio. That's not good. You it's know, crazy. Like, yeah. It's, it's terrible. Um, and so, and one of them is a volunteer. And, and my question is like, name another industry or another job where somebody's like, Hey, I'm willing to put in all these hours, all this work for free, no yeah, benefits, nothing out of it. I'm doing it for free. Nobody's going to do that. It's lunacy. Right. So yeah. in my opinion, we've been so far left behind in that boat. I hope we make it right and get that boat off. I think if we do, we'll be able to see more when it comes to social media. I think it gives kids a new avenue to get their face out there, their video out there. Um, and I think it's good. I think it'd also be bad because they kind of um, like solicited themselves a little bit too much. Like, you know, some of the stuff is just overboard, you know, like you're tagging 15 different coaches in a tweet on your video. It's probably not a good look because you're kind of just saying like, I'll take whoever wants me. Yeah. You know, I think it could be a little bit more calculated in my opinion, but um, there's no secrets anymore you're not going to hide a kid out anymore. You know, those days are, are long gone. Mm -hmm. um, yep. All it takes is one person to pull their phone out with a radar gun and say, Oh my God, this kid is from a town of five or 10 and he's throwing 93. And the next thing you know, you got Vitello on a private jet going up there. Right. So like <laughs> there's no secrets anymore. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. um, I think that's a good thing. You know, I think it's cool. Um, and I think it gives kids from different parts of the country that maybe don't have access to come into Omaha and, and, you know, go after a school like Creighton, or perhaps we don't have the access to them. It kind of, you kind of meet in the middle. So I'm mm. all for, it. I think it's great as long as it's calculated, it's genuine and it's not phony or, or, or fraudulent. I think it's important that, that everybody gets an opportunity to be seen. And I think video is huge. So, yeah, uh, we're on Twitter a lot. You know, we're, we're constantly getting hit up on Twitter. Um, you know, I know field level is another, you know, type of type of platform where people use to kind of get their videos out. Um, and I'm sure I'm missing a bunch of others. And obviously you got websites like Perfect Game and PBR, um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that kind of have been doing it. But I think if you don't want to spend the money on those showcases, that's fine because you can still use Twitter and all you need is a video camera and, and, and somebody, you know, performing, you know, yeah. throw BP or hit ground balls to you. Yeah. And this kind of ties into a question I got for you about how long you look at a player before acting on the player. Um, has that changed over time too? Are you going to look at a player for a month, six months, 12 months, 18 months? I mean, does it change by players? Do you have a process for that? For high school kids, if the, the biggest thing is getting that timetable on when they're going to make a decision. Um, mm, you know, yeah. again, everybody's different. And the thing that kind of ticks me off is if you, you're telling me you're not going to make a decision until after the summer. And then all of a sudden school X comes in, they're like, Hey, we need to know in 48 hours. And you're like, okay, I commit that, that, that pisses me off because yeah, you know, you, you basically caved in, you gave us your word, like, Hey, I'm going to be truthful to my timeline. Um, and I'm going to be straight up. So if they give you a timeline where you have time, if it's a hitter, we try to see 15 to 20 at bats. Is that always feasible? Probably not. For a pitcher, two outings, three outings, I mean, it's it's challenging. I mean, you go down to these tournaments and it's like you got 400 teams down there. You're fighting mm -hmm. Atlanta traffic, which is a, you know, basically a death mission to begin with. So, I mean, it's really hard to try to cover all of it, but more the better. Um, we try to get as much information as possible on them. So we'll scour the Internet uh, with seeing what they're posting on social media We'll try to get in contact with people from back home, whether it's their teachers or, you know, 
school counselor um, or coaches. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we try to just put them in positions where we ask them certain questions and, and see how they respond to that. Mm -hmm. um, and then what I like to do is if we're getting really close on it, I'll go sit next to the dugout and see how they react during the game. Um, are they a good teammate? Do they look like they enjoy playing baseball? You know, because mm -hmm. I mean, there's plenty of kids that we see and they're just like, no, nah, I'm doing it because my dad told me to, or my mom loves watching me play. I don't really like the game. Well, you know what? I mean, it's basically a full-time job when you get to college, man. So if you don't oh, love yeah. it in high school, you know, if you don't love it in high school, college is going to be a grind for you. So yeah. we try to see what they're like and we try to show up unannounced sometimes. We'll go incognito and not wear, you know, the, the logo on the, on the shirt. Um, obviously, if you're going to an in-town game, that's a little bit, you kind of stick out like a sore thumb, but um you know we we try to we try to see what they are like when we're not there mm. okay so it's kind of like you're looking for the makeup of the kid too because you said you also look out at the uh the school counselors even and i didn't think that anyone did that but it just goes to show i guess uh how you treat everyone is really is really important i guess i mean i don't know <laughs> like that's that surprised me when you said that yeah i mean i think it's um you need to get as much background as possible on the individual because, yeah. um, you know, if you got cancers in the clubhouse, it's going to spread, you know, and, and, yeah. and I think you want to make sure that you're getting a well-rounded individual that wants to thrive in all three facets that we're asking them to do. And that's being a good student, a good person, a good baseball player. Um, mm. But if one of those facets are, flaw are flawed and they're not really putting in the work that they need to, that's going to show up on the field, you know? So mm -hmm. if, if they're skipping study hall or they're they're not showing up to tutoring appointments again if, if he's a two six student and that's the best he can do then get a two six but don't go get a one nine right if you're a hmm. three five student then get a three five right do what you're capable of doing but if you're cutting corners hmm. in the weight room in the classroom off the field that's going to show up on the field so we want to make sure that we're doing our homework on the individual. Um, and do we always hit it? No, you know, it's, it's, you don't always hit it. You sometimes, you know, you get kids that they just don't work out. That's life. You know, find me an industry that doesn't miss. Yeah, seriously. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's the way that college baseball is. I mean, you're totally right about that. Um, but no, yeah, you kind of, you need a player that just likes, you know, the hard parts too. I mean, it's, it's just going to make life a lot easier. Um, but, and yeah, it's difficult to find those guys, but uh, their makeup is certainly uh, a main characteristic and a main teller of like whether or not that'll pan out. Um, and just in my experience, um, I want to ask about how you got started in coaching. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Connecticut, small, small town, mm -hmm. um, Went to a private high school for baseball and basketball. Realized that six foot, my athletic ability probably is not going to play at the Division One level for basketball. So yep. ended up, you know, full time in, in baseball and 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 played um, on a travel ball organization based out of Florida. Kind of before this whole thing of like flying kids in playing was a thing. Um, hmm. My team was kind of like the first team to do it. Uh, so really? okay. played with a lot of yeah, played with a lot of different individuals from all over the country, which was awesome. Um, and, uh, ended up going to St. Louis university. So I played down there for four years, didn't know where St. Louis was, took a visit, fell in love with the city, uh, fell in love with the coaching staff that, uh, you know, was kind of rebuilding the program. 
Um, but I knew that all four guys that were involved in the program were have won at a high level. Hmm. Um, so that was something that really drew me in. And I wanted to see a different part of the country. So I wanted to get out of the East Coast, see what the Midwest was like. I like the slower pace. You know, I still love going back to Connecticut, New York and hanging out with friends up there. I, you know, I now that I live kind of a slower lifestyle, going back home to live a fast lifestyle is kind of fun. So, yeah. um, but played four years there. I was all in on going into law enforcement. Um, hmm. So I made a lot of really good connections in St. Louis with the FBI, DEA, St. Louis Police Department. I was all in. Um, I was going to do it. I was going to you know, go through the academy after I was done playing. And it was about halfway through my senior year. We didn't take buses. We took vans. And I got stuck with our head coach and all the bags. And so we're sitting there and we're driving. And he's like, what are you going to do after college? You're going to be a cop? And I was like, yeah, I'm thinking about it. I'm also thinking about being a college baseball coach. And I thought he almost like swerved off the road. And he's like, I don't know, man. He's like, it's a grind. He's like, there's not a lot of money in it. He's like, it's, you know, you would be great at it, but it's, it's a, it's a grind of a profession. And he's like, you gotta have a supportive, if you get married, you gotta have a supportive wife that understands, you know, that you're going to miss a lot of stuff. Mm. Uh, so I completely went against his advice. And I, you know, after I got done playing, I turned down some indie offers, hopped right into coaching. I had an extra semester. So they brought me back as a student assistant, graduated in December, Worked at a junior college for that spring, Jefferson mm. College, which was about 30 minutes south of St. Louis. Um, coached there. They were coming off back-to-back -back Grand Junction uh, bids. So it was a really good junior college program. Got to run the offense at 23. Then went that summer and got hired up in the New England Collegiate League. So I coached mm. up there. Which got team? A chance to, uh, Laconia. Okay. Muskrats. Okay. So uh, the owner left, and now he's in Upper Valley. So, um, and actually the head coach is our area Tampa Bay scout. So really cool oh, wow. dynamic. That. Yeah. So got a chance to work with him. Uh, and then St. Louis hired me back as a volunteer. And then that following summer, our recruiting coordinator left to go be the head coach at Murray state. And then they hired me full time. Um, so I coached there for another two and a half years and then coach service hired me in the fall 17. And I've been here, um, since. So, to answer your question without giving you the full bio, why did I get into coaching? Mm -hmm. um, mainly because of all the bad coaches I had in my career. Um, hmm. And I wanted to break that trend. And I wanted to uh, put these kids in a position to get to where I didn't go. Um, hmm. And my goal every year is to have every kid play professional baseball. It's not an attainable goal. I know that. But I want to make sure that we're giving them an opportunity to do so. Hmm. Um, and more importantly... I want to make sure that they walk out of here knowing that a I had their back and b I did everything in my power to make sure that they're going to be successful after they leave here. Mm -hmm. um, and again, all the coaches I've had in my career have had a lot of bad ones, um, and it's mm -hmm. really left a sour taste in my mouth of why are we doing this as a job? It's not for me. It's not my ego. It's not so I have a bunch of trophies in my office and my Wikipedia page is sick. Like I don't really care about that. My goal is to make sure that when these kids leave, they're ready to roll with whatever they decide to do. Um, and they've walked out of here with a really good experience. And hopefully we've given them life lessons that they can go on and have success inside of their life. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, having a lot of bad coaches. And I don't know if this is just mine and your experiences, but I've definitely seen some players where I'm like, 
they definitely could they definitely had a shot like they definitely had a chance and if only they were just kind of steered in the right direction or like had just a little bit more help or had just a little bit less fractured of a relationship with the coach like maybe it could have panned out so I don't know if you ever experienced that as a player as well with some of your teammates but I've definitely seen that and that almost draws me toward coaching too like to do kind of like what you were saying you know to to not be like to not have that to give everybody the opportunity um did you experience that as a player at all yeah you know, I think, I, I think, you know, looking back on it and what I tell our guys is make sure you don't have any regrets. Like nobody mm. wants to be the guy at the end of the bar stool 10 years from now that, that is pissed off about how his career went. So make yeah. sure that you are doing everything in your power. We're going to do everything in our power. Right. But mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many kids I've talked to that have bounced back from schools, whether it's portal or junior college that are like, man, I really saw the business side of baseball and I hated it. Um, Ooh, and yeah. I still, I, I still think, I still believe this. You can have the business side and you can have the relationship side. The mm -hmm. issue is there's so much money. Now this relationship side's going away. And now it's like, we got to win. And that's all I care about. And I don't care about you. And I only care about winning. That's it. And if you're not on board, I'll find somebody else that is because the next guy, he will be right away. But if it doesn't work out for him, we'll kick him off. And instead of in investing in these kids and investing in people we're only investing in the goals and the money and the wins and i think you can mm. still invest in winning and you can invest in relationships and you can have both mm. um so yes i perhaps didn't experience the business side of baseball i experienced people that just didn't belong around young kids like mm. just would berate you or get after you some people might call it hard coaching. I would say it's borderline abuse, right? And and I saw that. I'm like, man, you could still coach me hard. But some of the names that you were called growing up, like, I don't need to hear that, right? Like, <laughs> I, I just think, yeah. like, you kind of scratch your head on it. And it's like, yeah. now I saw it as a learning lesson where it's like, well, now I can handle anything. So whatever you throw at me, I can handle it because I've seen it ever since I was, mm. you know, 10 or 11 years old playing travel baseball. Like, I can handle it, right? Yeah. So, for me, it's just like, whether it was, you know, it's just little things that you think about looking back on it. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of it and, and you kind of just scratch your head where it's like, why are you doing this? Like, why, why are you a coach? There's no yeah, reason yeah. for you to go do your, go do another job. You don't need to be a coach because you're not good mm -hmm. at it. First off, and you really don't care about the players. Yeah. It's so like two faced too. Cause it's like, we're trying to be hard on you. Like you said, to kind of battle test you for, when the going actually gets tough in the game of baseball, but it's like, uh, we can, we can do that in a better way. <laughs> we don't have but, to but the, be so cutthroat. Like if you don't trust, like if, if, if you don't give trust and respect, then they're not going to war with you. They're not going to be in your foxhole. Yeah. But if you, a lot of guys if will if just leave. Yeah. I mean, if you have yeah. shown like, Hey man, I have your back. I've been with you every step of the way. Like I pushed you, you pushed me but there's that respect and that communication and that trust. These kids will do anything for you. Yeah. Right. And that's oh, what yeah. they want though. They want respect in order to get respect. You have to give respect. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think it's been flipped. I think people are like, no, you need to respect me and then I'll respect you. And that's wrong. I think you got to give respect. You got to give trust and you got to give communication. And until you get burned, they're always going to have that. Right. But yeah. that's where I think the coaching industry has gone on array where it's like, man, it's all about the guy 
that's running the program or the guys that are running the program. And I think that's, that's so backwards and it's so wrong. Well, it's also easier to say, or it's, it's easier to give respect to players and then expect them to give in return because it's warranted why you would expect the respect in return, as opposed to just saying, here's my expectation of you giving me the respect. If you don't do it, eh, it's your loss. And then it's just a lose-lose. Whereas yeah. at least you did your part on your end. And if they fail to respect, it's like, okay, well, clearly we've done our part. You aren't doing yours. Well, like at least it's pretty clear, like you're doing everything you can, you know? So like you said, yeah, I totally agree with that. I've seen, I've seen both sides where it's like, you know, you can get, you can get the respect right off the bat. And then just for a whole team, it's like, oh yeah, we're behind this guy. Like we're behind this coaching staff. Like we want to play for these guys. Like this is, this is like a family almost, you know, it's like, it's like we're pulling for our yeah. guys. So. And I, I, to add to that, and we don't have enough time to dive into this topic, but so I, mm. I did my master's here at creating organizational leadership. And, and I would also put the blame on the hires, not only just for baseball, but football, basketball. And again, people might say, well, we're firing people because there's more at stake. There's more money involved. There's higher expectations. But I think, leadership is, is i think it's like a 60 billion dollar industry how many times do we just keep making the same mistakes over and over again with the hires that we've had and i think if you look at it on the on the athletic side of it how many times are we going to hire the same type of person just with a different name and expect it to work instead of thinking yeah. like no this guy you know and, and and just think about it that way of how much money and it's more football because of how much money we see how much money have certain schools paid out left and right over the course of the last 10 years? Because the hires that they made have been atrocious, right? It's and crazy. It's, just, it's crazy. And it's not just yeah. the talent, man. It's everything. Like, it's just a dumpster fire of stuff, you know? Yeah. Like, we'll use Urban Meyer as an example. He keeps getting jobs. Like, because <laughs> he wrote a book on culture and leadership. He doesn't know the first thing about it. My dad grew up in Gainesville. I don't know if he's told you that yet, but he, yeah, he grew up in Gainesville. And then once we saw the the downfall, we we're just like, oh gosh, like this is not, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it, we we're just like, no, no. Like, and it made you question actually like, okay, was it just the team that was good? Like, did he have leadership and culture and all that? Or <laughs> like, was it mm, so a question? Mark. Yeah, I think it's a combination of a lot of different things. But, you know, yeah. the hire, the hiring process is really interesting with just like, you know, we keep making the same mistakes in a leadership role. But it's not I mean, it's sports, it's business. It's 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 everything that we're doing today. We just keep kind of putting Band-Aids on big issues instead of finding mm -hmm. the right leaders with the right character and the right traits to take leadership roles. Yeah. It's funny because there's actually a lot of coaches too. So it's like, there's a lot of people to sort of pick their brains on. I mean, the only thing I can really think of is like, um, isn't there like a big convention every year, like a big baseball convention where everyone goes and there's some yeah. people who talk at it. I mean, that might be the only place I think where you can interact with like multiple coaches and like really pick their brains. Right. Cause otherwise it's like, I'm competing against you. I mean, for sure. And I think so. The ABC, the ABCA does a great job of putting that event on. And That's right. Do yeah. Other, they do other functions throughout the you know the rest of the year, and I think they've done a great job of of building the brand. Um, I think the hesitation sometimes are our coaches don't want to give out the secrets. Um, and yeah, like hey man, just put it all out on the table because at some point somebody's going to figure it out. But I think if we're really big into building and growing this game. Um, and, and helping the kids that we're serving, 
Um, I, I think part of that is we got to be able to share that stuff. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, like you said, though, like you want to hold on to those secrets, whatever the secrets are. And I don't right. know, are, are there that many secrets? Like in terms of like, this is a broad sense, but like, do you think there's that many like little things where it's like, yeah, when we got an edge because we've got this and no one else does. No, I mean, like, can there be that many? Loaded, there's that's such a loaded question though. It's hard. Like, it's hard. I know it's a hard question. It's kind of just really like, a, it's like an off the cuff. Like, are, are there, I'm trying to think like, what could, what could they, I mean, be? I think people do certain things that are better than other people. Um, whether that's mm -hmm. in the recruiting process or whether it's in their developmental process or their culture process, then on the flip side of that, you know, you got a bigger budget, you got more money, you got, you know, yeah. more help. And there's a lot of things that kind of tie into it. And so I think it's really hard question, but then you see certain programs that consistently win every single year. And it kind of makes you wonder, you know, what do they have that the other programs don't have? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying there. <laughs> now I'm thinking, now I'm thinking a little bit more. Yeah. All right. We, you've been at this for a long time, by the way, I want to, I want to congratulate you on that, but I do have one more question for you. Um, and it's, Absolutely. it's the recruiting one. It's my favorite question. Um, I want to know about your most memorable recruiting visit. Like I said, could be funny, terrible. It, it could be a train wreck. It could be a huge success story. It's just whatever, whatever comes to your mind with that. I'm going to do a bad one because I mean, it, looking back on it, it's kind of like, wow. Uh, you know, you kind of went through it. So, yeah. um, I think I was like 20, 25. So I was like okay. trying to make a name for myself on the recruiting trail. Um, mm -hmm. we were after a kid from the South was getting a lot of looks, uh, really talented arm. Uh, um, and, you know, it was kind of dragging the process out. We had him on a visit um, and we kind of picked up on the dad being off the rails. Um, and off the rails. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of, just kind of like crazy if you would. Um, and so, you know, he got my cell phone number and um would call me and leave like two and a half three minute voicemails after having a couple sodas um you know like a lot of sodas and would leave the most ridiculous slurred voicemails and you know probably one thing i didn't talk in the recruiting process is how much of a factor the parents play in it um, well this highlights that completely yeah um and so I felt we felt terrible for the kid because obviously, you know, he was having to deal with that on a consistent basis. But um, we essentially went in a different direction um, and we pulled his offer um, because, you know, like, again, it was it was two or three times a week. You get three minute voicemails of just off the cuff, like he loves you guys. He wants to go there. But and then he would just, you know, dive into these stories that you would have no idea. It, it was it was bizarre it was crazy i wish i yeah. saved them um <laughs> because, you know at some point probably in 40 years i'd like to write a book on everything i've seen but um oh, you know it yeah. was certainly certainly wild I, I would say another one one more i'll give you we we had a kid from the northeast was really highly touted really good athlete multi-sport um his dad called me he always goes back to the dads his dad <laughs> called me and was like hey uh we'll call him we'll call him uh jim he's like jim jim will commit but he needs the following things and i'm like okay. oh god bro oh. he wants to live in this dorm with this roommate he wants this jersey number 
He wants this type of, he wants multiple gloves. And he just like, again, it wasn't like, Hey, I want a hundred thousand dollars of cash. It wasn't anything like that, but it was kind of like, my man, I'm not giving you whatever. Hey, what are we doing? Come on. Like, is your kid more like, special hey, than everyone else? Like, come on. Yeah. And then he's like, Hey, don't tell Jim that I called you, which is like the worst thing a parent can tell me, because if you don't want your child to know that you called me, why are you calling me? Yeah. You know, like, I, I don't get that. If you're not comfortable with him knowing, then don't do it. Yeah. Uh, and so ultimately the kid uh, showed up. Like we didn't, we didn't do all the, the things that he wanted. Um, he still showed he up. Ended up. He ended up committing. He ended up leaving at semester. Wow. So, oh my gosh. Now he ended up being a division one player. You know, he ended up playing division one baseball for, for all four years, but, um, or three years, I should say, but, um, yeah, I mean, crazy, crazy, crazy. Oh God. Parents, please. Jeez. You're not the first person, by the way, that's come on here and talked about the parents. I mean, it's just, just stay out of it. Like it's so easy. It's so easy just to stay out of it. Right. Like, I don't you know. Think. You would think, but you have, you have parents that live vicariously through their children. And I think it's just uh, yeah. like, your career ended. It's over. It's, it's, it's their time. Like, let them enjoy it. I yeah. advise them. I'm not saying, you know, and again, I've been a parent for 10 months. Like, I'm not saying, you know, not give them advice and the tools. Absolutely. That's your job as a parent. Like, not to be their friend, but be yeah. there for them, support them, all that stuff. But don't don't muddy the waters and stuff. You're just setting your kid up for failure. So oh, the ultimatum. I mean, come on. Like, yeah. what what are you doing? Like that was crazy. Like I, I don't know if it's like a TV show. Like what is this, like reality TV? You trying to stir up drama? Like oh my gosh, that yeah, that would steer me away so fast. And now I'm curious if that kid just like he was like yeah, dad I didn't get what I want, and then the dad's like you're gone. It's like, oh my gosh, no, stop. I mean, wait, okay, was the kid like, like, did he do fine that first semester at least? Like, was it? No, he struggled. He ended up being struggled. a really good player though. Um, okay. But I think, I think his high school career, he never failed at anything. Um, he was the oh, star yeah. player in, in multiple sports, was really good, really talented. And then he got his backside beat up in the fall, just didn't perform well um and just ran away from failure um and so i mm. that's something that that was obviously disappointing to see because if you keep running from you from it at some point it's going to catch up to you when it really matters um yeah so i think that was that was disappointing but based on the family life i can't sit here and say i'm not surprised that he ran away yeah and it always matters more and more the more you run from it because it's gonna the stakes are gonna just get higher and higher yeah, and at some point, mom and dad can't bail you out. They won't be here forever. Yeah, seriously. I mean, my gosh, you got to grow up sometime, right? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, Connor, this is that's all I have for you. Um, if you'd like to leave any sort of last words, um, just about Creighton, you know, as a whole, or you know, whatever, whatever you'd like to say, really, um, it could be about the program, could not be about the program, but. Uh, that's everything I have for you. Uh, I just want to say thanks uh, for, for coming on here. Um, yeah, so yeah. Well, first off, yeah. Thank you for having me. The, the questions were um, awesome. You know, they made you, they made you think on the fly. And I think sometimes when, when myself and other coaches do podcasts, some of them are kind of softball questions. And I think you, you ask mm. questions that, that make you think and they, they challenge you. And I think that's important. I think it's important to ask tough questions. And I think it's really important that, not know they're coming um you know mm. and i think sometimes you know we we 
you know, perhaps get these questions on a podcast and they're kind of set up in a way to, you know, give that like dynamic answer. And I think the, the best answers are on the fly. So I love yeah. that. I, I love not, you know, knowing how I'm going to phrase a question or an answer right away to a question. So that's Thank the you. first thing. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. I've listened to the first couple episodes. They're awesome. So you, you got to, you got a niche for it after your playing career is over, you know, so <laughs> I, would, you. I would keep, I would keep diving into that. But um, if you have recruits on this and it could be high school, uh, junior college transfers, whoever it may be, enjoy the process. And I think that's the biggest thing I think we're, and I think Augie said it best, uh, don't let the pressure exceed the pleasure. And I think that's the mm. biggest thing is, you know, we are now in a phase where, we're not enjoying the recruiting process because there's so much pressure. We're probably not enjoying the game as much as, as we should. It's a kid's game. Enjoy it. Right. Like you get to play baseball, you get to go to college, hopefully play baseball. Even if you're just a high school player, you're playing baseball, go enjoy it. Right. Like have fun doing it. And then in the recruiting process, make sure you go to a place for the right reason. Don't do it because you're getting the sick Nike gear or some schools are Adidas or Under Armour, whatever it may be. Don't do it because the cleats are customized, your gloves customized, or, you know, you get to you get to go on these cool extravagant trips for a weekend. Like, it's not the good reason. What is going to set you up when your playing career is over is probably the biggest answer I could give you. And and for me, I wish I took academics a little more serious in high school. You know, I had Ivy League schools on me, and I looking back on it, I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't take high school more serious. Same you way, know? And, yeah. No, I feel you like... know, if I have one regret, it's probably that, but that's part of life is you learn stuff later on. And our job is as leaders and people that have been through it is try to give that advice back to, to the young people that are going through it. So, um, mm -hmm. but I would say like, make sure that you are, are picking the place for the right reason and not that kind of, uh, you know, fake, like that fake reason of, Oh, this is going to look really good in my media interview when they're like, Oh, you committed to that school. That's unbelievable. But, yeah. Is it really going to help you at the end of the day? And I, and I think that's the biggest thing. Um, and yeah. I, I had a, I had an SEC coach tell me this a long time ago. He's like, I always get a kick out of it um, that kids don't choose like the highest academic school, like most kids, because hmm. at the end of the day, that's really what's going to matter, man. Like whether you play 12 years in the show or you play four years of college, you need that degree and you need a place that's going to set you up for success. So um yeah. he told me that right when i was starting out and i was like that's an interesting look because he's in the trenches at the highest level of, of college baseball which is the sec mm -hmm. um he's like i always get a kick out of it. he's like if i have a son he's like i'm sending him to an academic school so he can make a ton of money and he goes that way he's set up for the rest of his life um, yeah because wow. the odds and the statistics are just stacked against you for pro ball you know they're, they're stacked against you that's why it's so important to make sure that you're getting all these tools to be successful um, in life. You know, obviously we want all of our guys to go play pro ball, right? That would be great. Um, but, you know, again, it's just, it's hard to do. So you better have plan B. And I think part of the issue is we don't always look at that big picture. And we talked about this earlier in this, we look at what's in front of us. Um, yeah. I think we need to look big picture, take the blinders off, look big picture, what's going to help me for later on in life. So that's my yeah. advice, in a nutshell. Um, but again, thank you so much for having me on. I was pumped when you emailed me. Um, I'm going to text your dad now once we get off this. So um, <laughs> he did a good job with you, obviously. So that's, oh, that's stuff. <laughs> yeah, you can give him credit, though. It's fine. It's kind of two-way. I appreciate that very much. Um, Connor Gandossi, thank you for coming on. And I want to talk to you briefly after we say goodbye. But um, 
that's everything I got. And uh, yeah, that's uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. So see you next week.